Welcome to Design Meets Business, a show where design leaders talk about practical ways to quantify design, about making our work more transparent, and about how designers can make a bigger impact in their organization. I'm your host, Christian Vasile. And before we begin, I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. Today, you'll hear a wholesome conversation that I've had with Ed Vinicom, who is a head of design at BT. We talked about why it's important to make allies at work and how you can go about it, how to structure your design study cases. And towards the end, we're talking a little about design education. Hope you like this one. Ed, welcome to Design Miss Business. We've uh, crossed paths before at British Gas for a brief amount of time. Not enough time to talk too much, but enough time to find out about the quality of work you were doing. So I am delighted to have you on today to discuss design leadership and how to work at that intersection of design and business. So before we jump into all of that fun stuff, uh, why don't you give us a brief intro uh, about yourself so people know who's talking to them? Hey, Christian. Thank you very much for having me, first of all. So lovely to see you again. So a quick intro to me. My name is Ed, obviously. Thanks for thanks for the intro there. Um, I've been in the design industry now for about 15, 20 years, working at all sorts of organizations, both big, small, agency side, client side, all sorts of different sectors. I've wound up in my career at BT now. I'm head of design there, leading a team of about 20, 30 designers. And... Um, you know, still trying to keep it real, still trying to make awesome products. <laughs> I've come all the way from designing my own skateboards all the way here. So um, it's been a long journey, but still, still enjoying it. Here I am. Well, sounds like you're in a good place. <laughs> yeah. 20, 30 people, that's uh, probably a massive challenge. Well, how, what do you, how do you find that? It's, it's your first role as a head of design, right? That's right. Yeah. I mean, how have I found it? Wowzers. How long have we got? <laughs> it's like we've only got an hour. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, I mean, it doesn't come without its challenges, right? Absolutely. It's, I mean, purely just from a practical point of view, there are a lot of people, um, and that's only really just one tribe. That's only one small part of BT that I operate in. And, um, just the practical side of it, doing things like design reviews, one-to-ones, crits, swarming, all of those things just become that much harder when there are that many people in your team. But, you know, we're working on some awesome stuff at BT at the moment. We've got some crazy ambitions for this year. So yeah, it's, it's going to be a really exciting time for everybody in the team. So some of the work that you've just mentioned, you know, design crits and all of that, it's probably work that people know that it's happening at that level. But I think running a design organization all the time consists also of work that no, that nobody else really sees whether that's stakeholder management, whether that's talking about design with people who don't know about design. How are you finding that part of the role? I mean, that that for me is kind of largely like any other organization I've worked in. I mean, like, like BT aside, it's kind of like the same as any other company that I've worked in. It's the same as the first company that I worked in when I started my career. A lot of the stuff that happens behind the scenes really for me is mostly about relationship building, right? It's about getting that ally on the other side of the table, really getting to know the people that you're working with. Because ultimately, the more friends you make and <laughs> the uh, the more allies you have on the other side of the table, the easier your job is going to be and the more you're going to be able to accomplish. So I'd say largely that's most of my responsibility and most of my kind of activities behind the scenes, like you were describing, is, is about that. A recent example of that is um, we ran this kind of team building day uh, recently with my tribe leadership team and I facilitated it and prepared a few activities for it and one of the activities we ran was an ikigai exercise I'm not sure if you've ever heard of ikigai before but it's essentially 
it's kind of like um you know it helps you kind of understand like what your motivations are why you do what you do what your purpose is why you're here and right in the middle of all of these things that you do so things you love things you're good at things the world needs things you want to get paid for right in the middle of all of that is your ikigai and we kind of ran that with with our leadership team recently and you know that was just a great tool one of the tools that i've used through throughout my career to just really just get to know the people that you're working with because you, you won't expect half the stories that you hear from those kind of things and it's really just a good way of um kind of breaking down the barriers forgetting about work for a minute and actually just getting to know the people around you so that's a, that's a really good example i mean i mean retros are another good way of doing that we do a lot of those at bt and do a lot of those when i start a new team or join a new team it's that's a really good way of doing it too. You mentioned a word there that I wanted to talk about. I always try to tackle this, and that is trust. Building trust in organizations that you join, whatever level you're joining at, trust is something that you've got to have. You also said allies. That's not a word that I like. I know it's not war, but sometimes it feels like the more people trust you and the, the more people you can kind of you know go to and have a developer that can do some work for you on a weekend or, or stuff like that, the, the more successful you potentially could be in that organization. So when you join, don't necessarily think about the role now, but in general, when you join an organization, how are you trying to go about building those relationships and any practical tips there that that you might have for someone? Yeah, sure. I, I mean, it's a good it's it's a good point about using the word ally, especially with current world events. I think that's probably quite topical, and it's probably yeah, it is probably a dated way of explaining that situation. But yeah, allies, friends, <laughs> people that will trust you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's a really good shout out. Um, I guess. Well, back to your question. I suppose building trust is a kind of critical part of any role, like regardless whether in design or you know. <laughs> A janitor for a school or something you know like, like building trust with the people around you is is a critical part to anything you do both in your personal and professional life but i think there's a couple of outcomes to focus on when you are building trust right it, it, either you're building trust to prove the worth of your design team that's a very different kind of methodology of building trust <laughs> or you're just building trust with the people around you in your team and squad right i think if you're if you're joining an organization and you're trying to get a team set up and maybe you're starting it from scratch and you're trying to kind of prove the worth of that team and you're trying to build trust in doing so for me it boils down to three things that you need to focus on right to build that trust is reliability efficiency and kind of cultural shift reliability first if you're proving a team out for the very first time you have to build that reliability with the people and the kind of stakeholders around you, right? So do you have the talent in-house to design and build outstanding experiences? Yes or no? Is that a better option than just getting a third-party supplier in or an agency? Hopefully, yes. <laughs> you know, if it is, then that's great. Then you can start building that reliability with the people around you and the, you know, less money will be spent on agencies and shiny stuff and more money will be spent on your team and investment into your team. So there's reliability is a massive part of that building trust and proving that worth of that team efficiency as well as it is a, is a big part of that you know day one building trust it's can this team achieve or help us achieve our organizational goals either quicker and ideally for less money than what we were spending before because it's always going to boil down to that right it, like is this costing less or more money than our kind of current our current options so those are kind of two critical parts and then the last bit is the cultural shift right like 
is the team or is the team that you're setting up and scaling, etc., is that helping your organization move toward a more kind of user-centered design way of thinking? You know, are people around the team attending research sessions? Are you democratizing the, the design process? Is everybody involved in those workshops or is it just designers going off and kind of headphones on, sitting in a room and bashing this stuff out themselves? Those, I think, are like really some kind of core questions you need to ask yourself when you're kind of setting up a team when you're trying to build trust with an organization there is there is a fantastic book actually i've got it right here by my side because i was reading it earlier just to catch up on a few bits but it's a book called um undercover user experience design it's by two guys an old like an old boss of mine actually james box and uh, a chap called kenny bowles and it's a fantastic book really kind of depicts and describes all of the things that you need to do to start setting up a user a UX design practice in a business. So really good read for anybody listening who's who's going through that. Um, the second outcome that I described there when you're building trust with the people around you, which I, I suppose is inherent to the first point that I made, but it is also another kind of critical part of, like I said, any job. Um, and in terms of like practical tips, I don't know. I think it's, you would get to know somebody at work as you would do in any other part of your life, right? You spend time with them trying to understand them, trying to understand what motivates them, what's their purpose, why are they here, what can you do to help them realise that purpose. So it's kind of like, I think like relationship building isn't any different in personal or professional world. One tool I have used though to help me and, and my team in terms of like helping under, helping me understand them and their motivations is, um, is a framework called uh, the Heart Tree Star. I can't remember where I found this. I think it was on some Medium article somewhere. I think I, th- I think Jane Austen shared it a while ago. And it's basically like heart. You, you go through it in each stages, and you you know you talk like talk it through with your with your team. Heart is like the things that you absolutely love to do, right? It's like why do you get out of bed in the morning? You kind of talk about that. You describe it. You document it. And then the tree is more about how do you want to grow? Like what areas you want to grow into? Where do you see your career growing into in the next 10, 15, 20 years? Even if you have answers to those questions. And then star is like, how do you like to be rewarded? Is it like respect and seniority? Or is it like money? Or is it just working on some really cool stuff? And that has been a really, really effective tool for me, kind of like helping me understand my teams. And it's a good thing to do first, kind of sets the tone nicely. And of course, like, why do all these things matter, right? Like like you said, like, why is it important? I'm hoping anybody listening to this, you should probably understand why you should hopefully already understand why it's important doing these things. (laughs) Ultimately, you probably, we all probably want to live in a world where, you know, the services we're using are intuitive, they're easy to use, they make sense, you know, they're good, not rubbish. (laughs) And having a good design team in place is probably going to help those things along. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, having a good design team is part of it, but having a generally a good product team is mm. design is just team sport, right? You're very Absolutely. much so dependent on, on everyone else in the team as well. And to me, building these relationships and making all this effort, especially when you join a company a bit in the beginning, what it does is, is in a way kind of like a team building exercise, right? A, a bit of a, a long-term one, but the, the, the closer you can work with the rest of the team and the closer everyone can work with each other, the the better result you're likely going to have as a product team versus uh, at the teams that maybe don't necessarily enjoy working with each other or maybe don't know much about each other on a personal level. I've always found that the best work that I've done was in teams where 
I could go for a beer with with people mm. people in the in that team. So um, I and I, you said something interesting there. You said this is no different. Building relationships at work is no different than building relationships in real life, and and that's so accurate because it is exactly the same. That's why yeah. it's not different because it is the same. It is. You just you just share the same bit of carpet really with the people that you work with or now like now virtually you just share the same kind of teams chat rooms yeah it is it is the same it's an interesting point that you raise you know about the best work that you've done is in kind of like collab like collaborative teams and all that kind of stuff absolutely totally agree with that and i'd probably echo that same thought myself with the work that i've done in my own career but another point i wanted to add to that just to build on that is that collaboration is great but collaboration done with super large groups is really difficult and sometimes very yeah. unnecessary right like i wrote i wrote an article about this recently for anybody listening it's on i think it's on my twitter or linkedin somewhere about kind of sizes of groups sizes of teams right like these the, these things have grown exponentially over the last 20 years and even more so recently with the pandemic because everything is all remote everything's virtual and team sizes or people working on particular projects or products 20 30 50 even 100 people working on these things yeah and you might even still then be using the bracket like hey but we're doing it collaboratively but you're moving so slow because there's just so many people to kind of consult during that process so i think an interesting point is that yes collaboration is great but you want to keep it in small groups right like like, like when we think about the original kind of cross-functional squad model that Apple came up with originally, I think, what, like, when was it? Like late 80s, early 90s or something like that. You had like one marketing, one product designer, one kind of engineering and a product lead. We're talking a group of like five people. Yeah. When it's small and manageable, you can move fast. And it's and it's easier to trust the people around you because, you know, you know each other, you have a far higher chance of getting to know the people because it's a smaller group. So yeah, so something to be really wary of, I think. Yeah, it just reminds me of Basecamp. I don't know if you know the way they work, but Basecamp, for anyone who doesn't know, is a software company in uh, the US. And they have this really interesting uh, way of working where in each team, so they have really small teams of three people. They have no project managers or any of that. They have two developers and one designer. That's it. And they get goals, product goals every six weeks, and they get full autonomy on how to reach them. But there's only three people. That's it. And I, I find it, it right. It's it's just so lean, so fast, and <laughs> yeah. and and they. Uh, I've read an article. I just don't remember. Someone from Basecamp wrote an article about just how much more uh, happy they are at work because it allows them to move so fast. It allows them to truly make an impact versus sitting in meetings or having to, you know, ask permission here and there and all of that. So yeah, for sure, small teams are much more agile than large teams. Yeah. I wonder if that model will become the new Spotify model. <laughs> you know, because it's like almost every company you work in these days is like, how do you operate? It's like, well, we operate like the Spotify we model. squads. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And um, there, was, there was a great article. I can't remember who shared it, but it was, it was either a director of design or director of product from Spotify who recently shared an article that explained that they don't even use a Spotify model. It was just like <laughs> <Right>. some myth. <laughs> like, like, like we didn't come up with this. I don't know where this came from, but we don't operate like this. That's not how they work. Right. right, so I, I think that is just perpetuated out into numerous organisations from around the world to be like, we're going to be like Spotify, and we're going right. to organise our people like Spotify, but they don't even do it themselves. So maybe maybe Basecamp will be the new Spotify, and it'll be even smaller teams. 
I think you yeah. know that could be a good positive shift. I think. Yeah, for sure. And there are a lot of things that that Basecamp does well. I think in the way they work, uh, they wrote uh, they wrote a um, a small book called Shape Up, which is available for free on the internet about the way they work. It's a very good read. Uh, it's not. Up. It's much shape up. Yeah. yeah, you can find it on. Um, I think it's on their website. Just, just Google it. Nice. It's a. Uh, it's it's a really good read. Anyway, moving on. I one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about was this idea of starting out as a designer, and then you become really good at what you're doing, and then sooner or later you will find yourself at a crossroads of either become staying an individual contributor or going into management. And I find that a lot of designers have a hard time deciding which way to go because what made you really good in the beginning, which was design, is potentially going to be taken away from you or at least a lot of your time will not be spent on that anymore. Mm. How have you made that decision? Have you battled with that choice when you had to to, to step up into a management role? Oh, that's a good question. Yes, yeah. Short answer is yes, absolutely. absolutely. To be, to, I mean, to complete... To be completely honest with you, I'm not really sure where my sweet spot really lies these days. I, I think in in a lot of ways, I'm still trying to figure that out. My like previous roles that I've had have probably been a lot closer to the detail. My role at Virgin, I was quite close to the detail, you know, quite hands on, and that felt quite good because you, you're very much like leading by example. You know, like you're in the detail yourself. You're kind of ICing and you're managing teams at the same time. There's kind of player coach kind of role. Equally, I don't really think that's sustainable with very big teams. But, but yeah, it's a really good point. I think you have to feel comfortable and I think you have to be aware of your own motivations and the things that you want to try and do in your career and kind of see where that takes you. For me personally, I felt like the leadership management track or like however you want to describe it was a natural kind of like progression for me. So I've been working in industry for a long time. I felt as though I felt like I know enough <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, it's like it's difficult kind of saying that about yourself but I felt like I knew enough to kind of you know lead other teams and to try and give this a try but that's not to say that you're not necessarily close to the detail right like I think like like so, something that I like try and tell my team is like especially my managers is that look we, we we're leaders yes but but don't forget the first word in that. Like we are design leaders, so you know, like a big part of that role and a big part of that accountability is ensuring that what's going out the front door from a design perspective is good, is high quality. And I think to do that, you do, you know, there are obviously going to be certain aspects of the role that you're going to need to be close to the detail, and um, I think you're going to need to do that to try and help your teams in the right way. So. You know, yes, you're, you know, as like, as that leader, the more senior you get, you are essentially a multiplier of people, right? You want to make sure that the people you have in the teams can achieve outcomes that is basically greater than the sum of its parts. But that's not to say that you won't always be in the detail. Sometimes you will. Um, I've lost the thread of your question, Christian. Does that, is that well, it's, me, it's just, a really tough one. It is, it is. And everyone I ask says something slightly similar and you know mm. at the end of the day it's about what preferences you have at the end of the day it's whether you can imagine yourself not being in figma every day or you know you can yeah. imagine yourself being in in stakeholder meetings and and all of that be way beyond the, you know the design meetings that we usually have so mm. i think it's it's always a matter of preference uh, and and what works for you i was just curious how have you made that decision but i, I guess in a way you 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 have and you haven't because yeah cause exactly it's, yeah. yeah it's something that takes time to to 
to learn, does. I guess. It does. I, I, I think it's tough kind of um, feeling like you're letting, you know, you're well, not like losing control, but you're letting go of control of the pixels, basically, right? So, 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 right. so you are there to essentially empower your team and to help them realize all of the amazing things that they're going to be doing over the next year or two. And that is really hard, like, especially if you're, you have been an IC all of your career. It's really hard to try and let that go like this and just to turn it yeah, off and be sure. like, I'm not going to go back into it like this, like the team are going to do all of this. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it. Do you know? Like, I think it takes a lot of soul searching, you know, to want to to want to do something like that. And um, you know, it's, it's something I ask myself regularly. You know, am I on the right track? Am I not? But ultimately, you know, I think if you're if you're happy doing what you're doing and you know you're living a good, fulfilling life, then I think if it's fine, go for it. <laughs> for sure, I think it's uh, what you said there. Constantly asking yourself whether you're doing the right thing or not. I think that's. Uh, a key ingredient of this is just always just in life in general not only when it comes to what am i doing at work but always inquiring into whether what you're doing at work is something that really fulfills you or not and Ab- if it's absolutely. not well you can maybe you can maybe change some of that so <clears throat> i want to shift gears a little bit and talk a bit about hiring your experience there because I think you've got a lot to offer for people who are potentially looking for work right now and the reason I'm or not right now, but just in general. And the reason I'm saying that is because although you are head of design and most of the head of designs that I, I know don't even have a design portfolio, it's just the work that they've done, the work, the pixels that they've pushed are so far back that this doesn't make any sense for them to have it. Well, you have one of the most well thought out portfolios that I've seen out there. <laughs> Thank you. So for, I'll, we'll put that in the show notes so anyone can see uh, what, <laughs> what I'm talking about, but let's talk a bit about portfolios what is important when building it building your portfolio well firstly thank you for the kind words it's uh, it's, it's nice of you to say that um wow i think when i I pulled that together i think there's there's just one thing on my mind really it's how can i describe these things as a real narrative how like like, how how Mm. can i tell the story of what i've done yeah right it's not i mean I've seen countless portfolios, countless, countless CVs and like everything else where, you know, just like chuck a few pictures on there. This is kind of roughly the problem we were solving. And this is like, this was it. It's not really telling me anything. It's not really telling me anything about the work. It's not really telling me anything about what you have personally learned through that process, what the organizational benefits were, what the financial benefits were, what the next steps were, nothing. So I think, I think probably one of the, one of the, things that I wanted to try and take away from my own portfolio was, yeah, how can I describe this as a real narrative? So what is the problem we were trying to solve, right, to begin with? And that might be customer problem, that might be an organizational problem, that might be a team problem. Could be any problem, but I want to be very clear about what we were doing, why we were doing it. And then just walk it through step by step, as structured as I possibly can, and then be sure to to include the things that I've learned personally, the things that went well, the things that didn't go well, which I think are equally as important, the things that didn't go well. No one really mentions that very much because like, I don't want to be embarrassed. Like, I don't want to be ashamed or I don't want to kind of allude to the things that I could have done better. Yeah. Those are the things that I'm probably more interested in because if you're not sharing that um, openly, then you're not... It's almost like there's a, there's a little like lack of vulnerability happening there. It's just like, look, no one's going to get anything perfect. So if, if, if you're not kind of sharing the things that you didn't, that that didn't go well sorry then i don't think you're being completely truthful 
And then lastly, it's kind of like, yeah, like I said, what are the kind of clear results from your efforts? If you can describe that as a narrative and be really clear about how your work benefited the kind of bigger collective, the organisation, then I, I think you're onto a winner. Yeah. Well, I like that you took the discussion to results because I see a lot of portfolios, not necessarily portfolios, but in general, when you talk about, uh, when you talk with people about their design work, very rarely the focus is on results. Very rarely the focus is on, well, here's the needle that I moved for the company. Here's the, Mm -hmm. well, it could, doesn't necessarily have to be a financial improvement. Not everyone works on conversion rates and all of that, but it's some sort of improvement because the way I like to, to frame it is even when a feature or some sort of a request trickles down from the top, there is a reason behind that that's business linked. There's some there's some sort of reason there. We we need to make more money, or at the end of the day, it's always about money. If if you truly ask, you know, you ask why five times, you're always gonna yeah. get to to the bottom line. So, and that's fine. And that's fine, by the way. That's okay. Like you know, that's sure. what that's that's what organizations do. They make money. <laughs> but I, I only I don't only think that's okay. I think that's that's what this whole podcast is about. I, I just want to mm. bring it out a bit more about the fact that. Design is about making money and mm. is about keeping organizations running smoothly, uh, just like any other function in the business does. So should design, just we do it through design work, right? Through um, absolutely, yeah, through pushing pixels, if you will. But I think sometimes it's much more clear cut. So if you, for example, work at an organization and you work in the growth team and you have to work on a conversion rate, then it's probably much easier to put a portfolio piece together because from the beginning, you started working with the metric. yeah. So you can talk about that. But what about when there is no metric attached to a project, which I certainly have had in the past? What do you do with that? When there is no metric attached? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I, I don't think I've ever come up with that in my career. I mean, why? And again, I'll probably ask, why are we working on this? If there's no kind of clear measure of success, then then we don't know whether what we've done is actually an improvement or it's just, we've just done it just because. So I think if you're if you're working on something without a clear metric, I would probably push for that. That could be, you know, and that could be, um, you know, kind of. I, I guess yeah, that that could be business related or customer related, like you're saying. Ideally, there's a kind of sweet spot in the middle, right? Like so, like somewhere in between. But numbers without meaning behind them. As a kind of like a crying baby, you know that something's wrong or something's right, but you're not really sure why that is happening. <laughs> so just generic metrics and generic kind of like quantitative data like that is useful, but it has to be paired with qualitative data for help to, you know, to help us understand why that thing is happening. Typically, the metrics that I've used when I'm working towards something, this is probably both at Virgin and at BT. We get a lot of these like CSAP, use like MPS, we use things like that. Those are yeah. like the most common metrics that we use. You know, like this journey should, or this, sorry, this improvement should improve CSAP or MPS by X percent. Well, you know, it's yeah. just like the most common metric that people are familiar with. But I think, I think there's plenty of opportunity to go deeper on those metrics and actually talk about the things that customers are trying to do and tie those things into business metrics. So let's say, right, a customer is trying to book a ticket, trying to book an airplane ticket. That's what they're trying to do. That is the customer goal. I want to book a ticket to go away to Barbados or something. And then that customer goal will be tied to revenue, will be tied to average yeah. revenue per user. It's like, it's really critical to try and get that link. I'm not saying that's easy, but I think it's really critical to try and 
do that. So it's yeah, it's it's a real tough one, you know. And those and those metrics are going to depend on what your business values as well. So most of the time, it's probably going to be revenue, CSAT, NPS, like you said. But Apple, for example, they value ID registration as a key metric, right? So right. the amount of people that they can get signed into their ecosystem, that's the metric that they value. But most other organizations don't, yeah, maybe a little bit behind the curve like that. They're not really tied into that kind of customer, real customer focus on it. Yeah, some companies have what they call a North Star, which at the mm. end of the day, ideally everything you're doing should in a way or another impact that. Some of my experiences is in the business-to-business -business world where there is not necessarily a direct impact because, well, first of all, financially, you don't really have conversion rates in many places. Many B2B um, software is sold by sales teams, so they take care of that. But then in that case, then you have um, something on the customer, you know, a customer benefit, uh, a framework that I've used in the past. And I will obviously forget what all the letters stand for, but it's called HEART. It's called the HEART framework, and it's uh, actually done by Google or someone at Google. And um, one of the, I think the T in HEART stands for task success. And that's the most, the simplest form of benefit that you can actually that's come right, up with yeah. well it's well did can people do this action faster now or better or you know compared to how they they were doing it previously and if you can prove that that in itself is a benefit that your design has has helped uh, yeah. bring about so it's it's stuff like that yeah heart's, heart's great i've used that like used that before as a kind of rough framework we use something similar at b2 we use something called ees it's kind of like so effectiveness to just measure like you're saying task completion efficiency to measure friction and satisfaction to measure ease of use yeah so we use this so we use a similar framework to help us structure data to help us inform design decisions and i think with that like without it without those kind of without this kind of framework i'm I'm a big fan of frameworks, by the way. If there's a framework for anything, I will like I will be using it. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but I think without these frameworks, especially for things like user research and for things like data to, to help kind of inform design decisions, you're probably going to get a mix of like verbatim and kind of task completion. Those two things are not necessarily going to be complementary unless you're kind of objectively looking at it using a framework like EES. So I think at BT last year, I think before we use this framework, we would get like conflicting insight right so a customer might be able to complete something but they thought like yeah but i just didn't really like it like this you know this it was really hard it was difficult to see the text it was either it took them a long time but without that framework without that structure it was difficult to kind of score those things and you weren't really sure where to go after that so using that framework using that ees framework enabled us to experiment a lot more it allowed us to look at that data a lot more objectively yeah it, it, when you when i was talking earlier about some of that work that a design leader does that's not really talked about it's also something like this so if you join an organization that's not necessarily great quantifying design well you might want to come in and then either create or find a retrofit one of these design frameworks that are KPI mm. frameworks, whatever we call them, and then measure the impact of your design team against that rather than, you know, per project. Like we, it, it's good to have an overall framework. I remember at BG, we used to use the ENPS um, score. That was everything mm. we were trying to do was against the ENPS. Yeah. 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 It's a fairly common metric. I mean, like, you know, I don't, like, I don't think that's 
totally daft. I mean, you know, MPS, I mean, you can get quite specific with that. Virgin, we did something quite similar and you can get quite specific with those metrics like CSAT, like for a particular journey, for a particular thing. And I, like, I, I, I do see the value in that. But like, like I said, I think it's about linking those things to like usability and knowing that ultimately you want to be able to point to something and say that this particular part of our experience the poor kind of like the, the poor usability in this particular part of the experience is directly related to this drop in revenue right and we know that is a fact but having that like specificity and having that kind of focus on those things is really hard to achieve if you're not linking these things together um so that's i, I mean we do try and do that we do try and report on um on on kind of metrics with that kind of customer goal lens and that's you know that's why it's so so important so when you look through some of these portfolios how do you usually weed out good potential candidates from the rest because i know that you're not spending 10 minutes reading every person's portfolio right <laughs> you probably have seconds so how do you make that decision yeah. so fast well i mean generally i like, I, I try i try like to meet everybody because um it's it's really difficult to understand what someone or so so who someone is and why they do the things they do when you're just looking at a CV and and, and also it's not massively inclusive right like like right. some people might not feel comfortable kind of writing a CV some people might be quite illiterate some people might have I I I don't know what else that might stop them from being able to do that so so one thing one thing I w- I would like to try I haven't actually been able to try this but one thing i would like to try at some point is to advertise for jobs and there's no cv required right i just like to meet people and just see see what they're like see what motivates them and everything else and then from meeting them and meeting them face to face or virtually whatever i think you'd be able to ascertain kind of three qualities that i always look out for and i totally ripped this off of a book called um five dysfunctions of a team by a guy called patrick lencioni fantastic book for anybody listening who wants to understand about organizational structure and culture and what it takes to the like the pieces you need to build a good team and uh, he depicts kind of three things like triple h it's like humility hunger and honesty right like are they humble enough to understand and realize like where they are in their career even if they're very skilled no one's a, really a master of their craft you know like we've all got things to learn we're all on a learning path so are they humble enough to understand where they are in their career and identify the things that they need to do to move forward are they hungry to do those things or are they just got completely despondent with the design industry and they actually want to move on and do something else or are they actually hungry to like help your organization and really hungry to build and design great experiences you know and and are they honest about that stuff you know are they are they really telling me like what's what, what's happening here or are they really telling me why they're leaving their job or are they doing those things yes or no i think the more honest and the more transparent they can be with me during those interviews the more i think and the more they show that vulnerability the more i know that i've got someone special here yeah um but for leaders it's like you know it's quite like, like quite different when i'm hiring for managers or senior managers i'm more looking at more the how rather than the what they've delivered do they have any experience kind of empowering teams Sometimes I can't stand the word empowering, but I like I, I keep using it. I, it's a really overused term, but yeah. I'm hoping you know what I mean. But you know how like how, how they've been empowering their teams to accomplish an outcome. How did they leverage the right skills across their team to accomplish this outcome? Are they using the right people for the right problems? 
how do they communicate progress, blockers, successes to the wider team? Are they bringing people into that process? Are they democratizing the design process? Um, you know, and are they bringing everybody along on that journey? These behaviors aren't really about what they delivered, but rather the things they did collectively to raise the maturity of design. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, very difficult to get from a CV. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, and I assume also difficult to get from a portfolio, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's kind of the same story. So I know I don't know if you have, but I know certainly I have in the past said yes to some opportunities that in hindsight, I shouldn't have yet said yes to. You only realize a couple of days in your in your new role. Yeah. Uh, how can? Yeah, well, there you go. So, how can designers make sure they avoid that? Is there any tips for them? Any any ways you try to make sure that when you're in front of a potential opportunity, you inquire the right way about that role? It's a good. It's a good, really good question. My first kind of thoughts on that, right? When when you're describing it, then. Even if you did step into a role that you regret after the first week, that's that's okay. You know, it's like the world is not going to stop spinning tomorrow if you kind of realize like, oh, actually, hang on, I've made a mistake. This isn't actually for me. Yeah. You know, that's fine. It happen happens all the time. It's happened to you, like you just described in there, Christian. It's happened to me as well. I'm sure like most people you meet throughout your career, they probably experience the same thing. Um, you know, so my first recommendation would be don't panic. It's like it happens all the time. There's plenty of work out there. There's plenty of opportunity and, you know, maybe just needs a bit of a course correction. So that's fine. How you can avoid it. I mean, like I said, I don't think you're like, you'll always be able to avoid it, but I think that there are some questions that I ask in interviews to kind of help me gauge the appetite for design in that organization, right? Because firstly, it's important to point out that for anybody listening, if you go to any organization in the world, it's never going to be perfect. Like sure. I've worked for a lot of companies and they all have their good bits and they all have their bad bits. But the things that I ask in interviews, things like what stops design from being heard? That's like a really kind of open question, you know, that really kind of like sets the tone of like, you know, how, how mature are you in your organization, right? Like how, like how far does design really go? You know, and that, you get some really interesting questions out of that. Also things like set, setting expectations, like what does success look like for you in this role in a month, three months or six months time? By asking that, you might find that, whoa, my expectations are completely misaligned to what this guy or this woman is saying. Like this is not what I want to do at all. There's, I mean, there's a couple of kind of practical tips that you could take away. Also, like like reaching out to people who currently work there as well. I know that's like such a classic, but it is so useful. That's really good. Reaching out to people on LinkedIn, asking them like, "What's it like working there? What's the appetite for design? What are you most proud of that you delivered recently?" I've got some pretty burning questions for people when I go into interviews. <laughs> <laughs> You're interviewing them more than the interview. Yeah, but right? well, well, it, it should be, to be right? a two-way street. It should yeah. be, yeah, absolutely, like, absolutely should be. Yeah, asking them what they what like what they're most proud of. That's that's another really good one because you can gauge them like what they're saying. If they say something quite like, I don't know, like we managed to get like this HR tool working right. It's like, pff, right, you know, like, yeah. like, am I really interested in that or? You know, are you actually delivering something for a customer that is really amazing, really ambitious? Yeah. Are you talking about that? Then I'll know, you know, if I'm more suited to that role. There's something that you said there, and I really want to highlight it because I, I find that we're not saying that enough. When you join a, a new company and you realize this might not be it, 
it's okay. It's not, and it's not only okay to, first of all, admit that it might not be the right thing, but I like to add on top of that and say, it's okay if you can only be there for three months and move on because your CV doesn't matter more than, than your happiness at work. Because when you're not happy at work, you're not doing the type of work you want to do. You won't do great work. I'm, I'm so convinced of this. So I've in the past left companies quite shortly after I joined and, and you know, you have that the societal pressure, like, oh, am I staying enough here? Is anyone else going to hire me now that I've only been, you know, here for six months, seven months? And that is, nobody is thinking about that anymore. If you've only been in a yeah. role for six months, as long as you can say, look, I've tried, it didn't work for me for X and Y reasons, then you're fine. So give yourself permission to also leave if you're unhappy. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't honestly agree with you more. I saw, like, like, I saw a great visualization on LinkedIn recently. And um, it was just kind of it was just kind of like this infographic of like how we used to kind of gauge success of our of our roles, right? And it was kind of split into like job title and salary. If I've got like yeah. a really fancy job title, I'm like VP of design, or if I'm head of design or something like that, director of design, and I got a big salary coming in, nice car, etc., all that kind of stuff. I'd say like absolutely typically how people would measure success, right? Mm-hmm. But but this this infographic on the bottom half of this infographic is like, okay, those are two things, yes, that we need to acknowledge, but they're only kind of two very thin slices of a bigger a bit of like bigger pie, for for one yeah. of a better phrase. And the other things that you need to be thinking about are things like your own mental health, how much time do you spend with your friends, how much time do you spend with your family? What about you yourself? Are you like doing the things and the hobbies and the passions that you want to do? You know, like reading or running like a good like good passions of mine. What about all of those things? Because if you don't have time for any of those things, and I would I would tell anybody listening to this, and I wouldn't necessarily, you know, deem your experience, your career up until this point maybe as a success. Because if you don't have time for friends and family and the things that you want to do, then, then, I, yeah, it's time it's time to revisit it. I think. Yeah, for sure. I want to talk a bit about design education because um, you're doing you're you're pulling some moves you have for a few years in that space. You've uh, you've created a course for for designers, great reviews. So, I think uh, I like to argue that you know a little bit about what design education is supposed to be like. So let's talk talk about it a little bit. Go for it. What's your take on what's missing at the moment when we're talking design education? Design education. I mean, firstly, for anybody who's seen any of those UX Club videos, I've got some pretty funky hairdos in there. It was like it was filmed a long time ago, but uh, <laughs> just like, yeah, no judgment, no judgment. Just fo- no. yeah, just focus on the content, not the hairstyle. One, I mean, one thing that's missing in design education. I mean, again, I, I'll probably challenge you in saying I think it's probably broader than design. I think this is kind of like any role that you're working in. I think probably one of the key ingredients that I see missing is probably just self awareness. I just think it's like the biggest thing. I, I think it's probably one of the biggest qualities that you can have if you want to progress in your career is self-awareness. And without that level of self-awareness, it's going to be hard for anybody, designer or not, to understand what they're doing well and what they need to improve on, right? And it's also going to give you perspective when thinking you know, of your own journey in your own career or thinking of an organization's journey in their kind of you know in terms of design maturity and that's super important in big companies because it's really easy to lose that kind of sense and that kind of perspective in the value that you're offering that company so so self-awareness is really really critical you know it, it 
for me, is kind of like the origin of a lot of threads, right? Without it, you can't tell what you need to improve on. Without it, you can't know what kind of social situations you're either comfortable or not comfortable in. Without it, you're not going to be able to determine what it is you actually want to do over the next year or two years in your career. It really just starts from self-awareness. How you get it, really tough question. But I think a good place to start is just being a bit more vulnerable, right? Again, easy said than done. I'm just like kind of going down <laughs> down the motions of all of these kind of things that you need to make these things happen. But, but you know, to build that self-awareness, you ultimately need to be a bit vulnerable. And that looks like sharing things that you might not normally share, being honest, constructively and respectfully honest, like with your peers, describing how you're feeling, describe how you think you're doing, how you think your peers are doing. You know, it's just it's just being vulnerable. Admittedly, I know like some people would find that difficult. But there is another great book, actually, about being vulnerable. It's called um, Daring Greatly by Brené Brown. Yeah, Fantastic book about learning about vulnerability and the things that you can do to do more of that. So anybody listening, definitely go and order that on Amazon. So uh, self-awareness, that's that's really important. I've heard that before and, and I agree. So when it comes to when it comes to um, more technical skills, design education, what is important to learn right now? And the reason I'm asking is because I'm actually, I have a, a bachelor's in design and I can tell you I've learned almost nothing in that, in those three and a half years, almost nothing that I'm applying today because it was never really about about what we're talking about today, about business, mm. about metrics, about what design really is supposed to do, uh, about what the impact of design is, about teamwork. All of these things that we've talked about today are not really tackled in design education. So no wonder younger designers come out or, or wannabe designers come out and they don't necessarily feel prepared to take on these roles. Mm. Um, and no wonder mm. nobody, not nobody, but no, no wonder they're not really hired because it you 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 might have done a six month bootcamp and then you join a company that needs to train retrain you as if you're mm. totally new. So when you've structured your course the way you have, what are some of the pillars that you focused on to make sure that whoever gets out of this is in a better position in front of a potential employer than someone who doesn't do the course? It's mm. a really good question. I mean, I, I think I've tried to structure that UX club content from the very beginning like like try to like try to structure it in like a in the most logical most kind of sensible narrative that i possibly could and i think really that kind of begins with firstly understanding the problem that you're trying to solve i think so i wouldn't necessarily say that's like a technical skill that you need to learn but i think it's an absolutely kind of critical part of your design kind of career and your like your design like arsenal if you will is actually understanding hang on a minute what problem are we trying to solve here have we dug enough have we dug deep enough to understand what that is have we done the five whys have we done generative discovery workshops have we done all of those things do we understand why we're actually doing this because half the work i see is just like well we've just done it because we were just told to do it but we haven't really like challenged it in any sort of way so the the, the, the content in uxclub.com i hope your listeners will probably agree that i've tried to structure it in a way that i started right there right from the top understanding what that is that i think is a good place to start other kind of technical skills that 
you know, get, like getting back to your original question, Christian, is just a lot of the technical skills I feel like are missing from most designers that I bump into these days. I just made a quick note of it, and there is a module on this in uxclub.com as well. It's about fidelity, right? Like knowing like what fidelity designed for and when. Like, wowzers, I've never seen this. It's so, so prevalent than I have done over the last few years. Designers just jumping straight into high fidelity things because they wanted to show something that's shiny. They want to impress people. They want to impress their peers. They want to impress me. They want to impress my boss. They want to, you know, like, I don't know what. But the amount of people that I see do that and the amount of time it kind of not like wastes, but just uses is, is really tough, right? And then, and the, the amount of designers who don't design from just basic sketches, even a sketch on the back of a napkin, right? You can still like offer like useful, constructive feedback and understand the problem that you're trying to solve and understand the solution that you're providing. A sketch on the back of a napkin can do that. I just don't see it. I just don't really see it anymore. This is like yeah. we're just jumping straight to the to the finish line, adding the icing on the cake before they've even baked the cake. You know, so I think more awareness of um, of what fidelity is appropriate and when. And I kind of saw it ages ago. I think it's actually on that module in my in my course material. There, there was a visualization of the kind of different kind of visual layers that you can add to your design depending on what you want to actually learn. Right. So if you just want to learn about like the basic kind of usability and like the basic problem that you're solving, you could do something in low fidelity. You could test that, get it done by the like like the afternoon or tomorrow morning or something like that. But if you're testing that whole brand experience and you're testing like that kind of brand perception, then yes, okay, then you need to add fidelity and you need to kind of make it shiny and do all of those things. But understanding the difference between the two is not not a quality that I see very much in the designers that I work with. So we're nearing the end. Uh, we're asking, or I'm asking everyone at the end, the same two questions. So I'll ask you two. First one is, what is one soft skill that you wish more designers would possess? Mm, one soft skill. Um, probably say listening. I think that would probably count for me as well. <laughs> All right. <laughs> you know, sometimes I'm a great listener. Sometimes I'm a terrible listener. And... Um, I'm just kind of book dropping all over the place here, but there's another fantastic book. I'm sure most of you listeners have heard of it called The Coaching Habit by Michael Stanier. Yeah, Michael Stanier, yeah. Great book, right? And he talks all about avoiding the advice monster. I read that book. It really, really changed my kind of perception and my understanding of coaching and more focus on listening and more, you know, the more you listen and the more you ask questions, the more you're going to get to the core of the problem. And when you understand the problem in its entirety then you can offer the most appropriate relevant kind of response and support so i say listening that's probably the biggest quality that uh, i think people would need um, i thought you were going to say self-awareness because you mentioned it earlier and it, it goes to show you have self-awareness because you just yeah you know yeah, <laughs> yeah there you go yeah yeah, yeah. listen Pro- li- listening and self-awareness do 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 more of all of those things yeah yeah <laughs> I don't think anyone has ever said, oh, this person is too self-aware. This person listens too well. <laughs> no, it's it's no, one of those no, that no, you can never that. you can never be too good at. All right, last one. What is one piece of advice that has changed your career for the better? Of course, that's another great question. Yeah, the, the, the first thing that springs to mind is something that an old colleague of mine said to me a few years ago. It's a quote from someone famous, but I can't remember who it was. But the quote is, 
all problems are people problems, right? right? When you when you think about yourself, if you're listening to this, you think about yourself at work and you think like, God, this is really challenging. Or like, this isn't going to plan. What do you think the, like, where, where do you think the crux or the core of that problem is? I bet you it's it's just relationships, people problems, right? Because right? most people that you work with, I think generally quite well-intended, but sure. expectations and things like that and kind of the relationships that you have with these people is where the work needs to happen. Yeah. And I think when you start understanding people, start getting on with people, you understand why they're there, why they do what they do and how you can help them. I'd like to say that most of your problems will go away, but... <laughs> <laughs> but that's probably not away. entirely accurate. Yeah. 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 <laughs> not, not, yeah, not entirely accurate, but I think, I think you would... Um, you'd have a much easier time. So yeah. yeah, that's just, you know, that's just always stuck with me. All problems are people problems, really, when you think about it. And most of the time, you know, all it takes is, is something isn't working the way it should or expectations aren't aligned, just reach out. Yeah. And I'm kind of telling myself this advice as well at the same time, right. really, to be honest. But, <laughs> you know, I think it's just like reach out and just talk to these people. Yeah. Just just be like, what's going on? How can I help? Like, you know, let's do this. I, like, you, you probably both want the same things. You just need to chat about it, talk about it, like real human beings. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> like we're supposed to. Yeah. Uh, Ed, where can people find more about you? How can they get in touch with you? Sure. Yeah. So my portfolio, I'm guessing Christian will probably put it on this page, but um, um, my website is um, edvinicum.com. You can reach out to me there. If you want to email me directly, grab some more advice, grab a second opinion on anything, more than welcome to do so. My email address is um, ed at edvinicum.com. Otherwise, you can always stalk me on LinkedIn and Twitter. Handles both edvinicum. Go for it. Awesome. It'd be well, lovely to meet you. And this hour has just flown by. So thank you really so much has. for being part of the design uh, meets business journey. Uh, appreciate you being thank here. Thank you. Awesome, man. We'll speak soon. Cheers. Thanks, Christian. Bye. That's a wrap for today. I hope you found this episode useful and that you've learned something that you're ready to implement at work tomorrow. If you've enjoyed this, as always, it would mean the world to me if you'd share it with your community, if you'd leave a review, and of course, if you'd remember to tune in for the next one. Peace.